Our good friends at Johnny-O welcome you to this episode. Now, the iconic Johnny-O clothing brand logo of the surfer and his longboard first caught my eye several years ago, but it's the signature Johnny-O style where West Coast meets East Coast prep that truly changed the game for me, and I've been wearing Johnny-O ever since. And now our listeners can use promo code RICHTAKE at checkout for 20% off your first order at johnny-o.com. That's 20% off the regular price at johnny-o.com. Use the promo code RICHTAKE at checkout for 20% off your first order. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted built and inspired by the role of sports in their lives here's your host here's your this is episode 121 thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen many times in our lives we reflect back on memories and think about how great some of those memories have been But Don Munson truly believes that for all of us, the best days are ahead of us. Don would step into the world of sports broadcasting while in college, which led him to be the play-by-play voice for his alma mater, Appalachian State, in 1984, and then moving into a full-time position as an on-air host with the Clemson Sports Network in 1995. He's helped host the Tiger Tailgate Show, the Fifth Quarter Show, and took over as the full-time play-by-play announcer for Clemson football in 2014 when he was named Director of Broadcasting. Here's episode 121 with Don Munson. Welcome to another episode of Rich Take on Sports. I'm joined by Don Munson, who I call the voice of the Clemson Tigers. But I, I've heard that you no, no, you no. don't call yourself the voice no, of uh-uh. the that's, Tigers. That's Jim Phillips' title. Yeah, that that will always is, be Jim Phillips' so title. So why is that? Well, uh, people, if people don't know who Jim Phillips is, Jim uh, was the play-by-play voice at Clemson for 33 years. And so um, he showed up in 68, passed away in, in 2003. So actually, I guess that would be 35 years. So, um, no, he, he will always be the voice of, of Clemson. I think that Clemson fans look at him that way. I knew him um, very, very well uh, the, the latter part of his life. So, no, he's... He's he's the voice of the Tigers. I just occupy his seat. Well, I know Jim Phillips. I mean, I don't know him or didn't know him, but of course, as a Clemson grad sure. in yeah. 1993, yeah. I knew of Jim Phillips and working around the athletic department as a basketball manager. I mean, he was one of those guys that just was nice to everybody. No, great guy. I mean, just a just a absolute great individual uh, and a guy that that really helped me a lot. I moved uh, to Greenville in ninety in ninety five. I guess it was April first of ninety five, and um, you know got to got to know him from that point on, working with the network, and uh, but just just a tremendous fellow. We lo- we lost him way too early. Yeah. So, what type of impact did he have on you then, in terms of a personal and professional aspect? Well, I mean, when I came to work for uh, the network here in ninety five, I was uh, kind of operations manager, also on air guy. Um, so. F- and we had worked together the previous season together uh, on the network in '94, but uh, you know, starting in '95, we started having you know much more interaction with one another. It wasn't you know like daily interaction, but you know three or four times a week, 
Um, Jim suffered, um, had some back problems in 96. And I think that's where our where our relationship really kind of grew because, um, I mean, he was laid up. I mean, he was, seriously, he was laid up at the house and living by himself and didn't. So, you know, I would go, our offices were uh, right close by, so I could run over there and check on him, you know, get him out of the house if you need to get out of the house. Let's, you know, hey, let's go to let's go to lunch together or, you know, some of that, or just check up on him and see what's going on. I actually subbed for him on a couple of broadcasts that year in 96. I went to Florida State. Did play-by-play play for a game there, which we got slaughtered, and then went to uh, Duke and did a win there, uh, also in in '96. One of Jim's best friends was a guy named Roger Berry, and uh, who still lives here in the Greenville area. Worked with him at Channel Four uh, back in the day, and Roger and I were were working together and good friends. So the three of us would play golf together and that kind of stuff. So, but he he had a definite impact on you, know, especially from just watching him. Now that I'm in this role, watching him how he handled the role, uh, and there there are certain aspects that you know people think it's that it's easy, you know, getting there and just talking about games, but there's a lot more to it. Than, <laughs> I know than it's just not that. just yeah. that. There's a lot more to it than that. So. Now you have a great voice, so well, I, there's a it's, there's an aspect of it just fits really well for radio. But did people tell you that? Early on, like, how did you decide that you wanted to go into radio? Uh, well, I got into radio when I was when I was in college at Appalachian State. My my sophomore years, where I got into it, uh, you know, the old adage of uh, voice for radio, uh, you know, not not the face for television, but voice for radio. Uh, so from from that end, so. But I got into it when I was in college. My uh, my college roommate was actually who got me into it, a guy named Mike Gore. Mike was. Uh, a really close high school friend of of me, and so we actually roomed together in uh, in in college. And our sophomore year, he said, "Hey, I'm going to go to this student radio uh, station meeting. You got to come with me and you know let's you know see what this." Is. So I went with him, and I guess the rest, as they can say, is history. Yes, it I mean, is. I fell in fell in love with it. I was a business major at the time, and you know I was in in accounting and stats and all that kind of stuff. And I was thinking, "Golly Moses, you know this is awful," um, but. Found uh, found the broadcasting world and got got hooked into it and was uh, was very very fortunate. You start re- uh, establishing relationships at that point in time. And matter of fact, my first job that I ever got after I graduated from App and in '84 was because of a relationship. Uh, a guy called me just kind of out of the blue. Hey, our sports director walked out today, and if you're here tomorrow, I'll, I'll introduce you to the general manager, and I think that you can that we can probably land you the job. And that's how it happened uh, right there in Boone, North Carolina. Oh, it's amazing how one relationship can have such a huge oh, no impact yeah. in terms of when you look back at a career. No, no doubt about it. And I think that you and I know this and, and people that are watching this, you don't think this is the truth. You, The older you'll get, the more you're going to find that it's all about relationships. Yes. It's all about relationships. It's uh, it's not, it's, it's it, it, yes, it is about what you know, but really it's only about 30% about what you know. And it's 70% about relationships and and who you know and being in the right spot at the right time and uh, but also you know working to get to that spot in time as well well and you also you have to work at fostering relationships oh because no you can get yeah. in your own bubble that sure. it's all consumed about me and the drive that you might have but you have to take the time to put in sure the situ- you know put in the work so to speak to 
continue to foster and develop those relationships. It is amazing how far you can go if you are just nice to people. You <laughs> have a smile on your face, yes. nice to them. Try to understand what they're going through. Put, you know, like you said, it ain't all about you. That's right. Uh, it's it's usually ten percent about you and ninety percent about others. Uh, but how you just treat people. I had an experience uh, in Syracuse uh, with a, a guy that was just. He was the doorman for the area where we got in, where our uh, radio box was, where our radio booth was. And the gentleman that was probably retired, working there uh, in in the dome, and you know, working the door. So I I usually show up about four hours before I go on air into the stadium, and he was working the door. And you know, as I was you know I was coming in and out and doing various things during pregame, and then uh, I stepped out while the interview was was playing with. Um, with Coach Sweeney, so that gives me about 15 minutes there right before kickoff to kind of step away, gather thoughts, you know, do whatever I need to do. But he's, you know, he's operating the stadium's filling up, it's starting to get warm, and I know, you know, no one's, you know, he doesn't have anything to drink, there's no water. I said, hey, what can I, what can I bring you? You know, do you, do you need something? And he, ah, I said, you know, let me bring you something, you know, you need, you know, can I bring you some water? How about some ice cream? Would you like some ice cream? And and the guy said, well, you know, I said, well, tell you what, halftime, I'll bring you some ice cream. So I brought him some ice cream at halftime. <laughs> ice just, cream's always good. Just, yeah, just just something simple. And he he was so appreciative of that. He said, you know, after, after the game was over and just as I'm getting off air, he shows back up to the booth and he stopped me and said, you know, no one has ever done that, has ever done that for me. In the years that I've been working here, uh, in the, you, you've been the kindest guy. That, and I said, I appreciate that. I hope that you're here two years ago when we, or, you know, next two years when we're back, we'll We'll uh, we'll do it all over again, and you know, just just little things like that, and that gives me joy, and it you know, it shows somebody else some joy as well. He will remember that. He will remember that, and, yeah. and I'll remember it. I, I will. Yes, it's got me, an I, impact I will, on always, you as yeah, well. Yeah, so absolutely. it's a two way street, yeah, and absolutely. just think of how much time did that really take you? No, I didn't take any time. You know, that's I, the point. I have an adage that I use uh, with fellows in my church, and you know, uh, how can I wash your feet? That's that's my you know, I always ask him, how can I wash your feet? Uh, it was if it was good enough for Christ and the disciples, it should be good enough for all of us. Agreed, and I've been a big proponent of the old saying, "Kill them with kindness." No doubt, type yeah. of attitude. But I actually like to say, "Lift them up with kindness," yeah. Yeah. and so you can really, truly have a positive outlook on the whole encounter by being nice. What you're talking about, you mentioned Christ. When did you become so strong in your faith? Well, I was very fortunate. My dad was uh, was a Presbyterian minister, so I grew up uh, in in a household uh, that was like that. My dad uh, was born in Atlanta, and uh, my father was actually in seminary at the time there in Atlanta. And then he went to he went to work for a radio ministry. Surprise, surprise! <laughs> so, there was a radio <laughs> background. There was a radio background there, so he went to work for a guy named uh, George Manfred Gutsky, who used to have a. Um, a, not just a nationally, but around the globe radio program back in the early 60s called The Bible for You. And so I was very fortunate to grow up in, in that type of household. Um, so my faith came at a very, very young age. Um, and I had wonderful parents. And I, again, I realize not all of us have wonderful parents, but my parents were awesome. I uh, had a great relationship with both of them. My father passed away in 12. My mother is still alive, lives up in the Asheville area, uh, as a matter of fact. So I, w- I was blessed from that standpoint. But, you know, they they kind of taught me, you know, and and then that led to my own decision uh, to, to come to faith in, in Christ. So 
it was it was that was a as a kid i i can't put a a date or a finger on it or all i know all i know is that hey i'm a sinner um that i need grace and mercy in my life that christ died on the cross for my sins um realize all of that and you know so um that's that's how i came and then uh, was there a specific part as you mentioned uh your you made the decision on your own so it wasn't necessarily forced i mean was there part of a journey for you i know you mentioned well, that you didn't have a specific one situation but what was your journey like then i think all of us have had job moments to be pro- uh, be honest with you and you know probably some people watching this who's this guy job that you're talking about? go to job read, <laughs> yes. read the book of job <laughs> you'll, you'll you find out know about patience you'll find out a little bit of it. yeah so i think some of us all have that but uh, you know, there was there was a moment at a very young age, around ten, uh, that that kind of struck me. And then um, there were other things as as I've gone through through life. Just to, you know, there there have been times where I've been literally driven to my knees. Uh, you know, with with things that have happened uh, in my life. You know, all of us are going to have adversity. It's it's how you react to that. And what where does your anchor hold in all of that? I think that really kind of carries you through. Um, so. But I know I know what I believe. I know where my anchor holds. Uh, I know what I'm supposed to do in this life, and I know that when I die, that that's not the end. That that's that's actually the reward. That's right uh, for me. So uh, that's that's what I believe, and uh, that's that's how I try to carry out my life, and and hopefully I do it well. Did you ever rebel at all? Uh, you know, I think all of us have some kind of rebellion period. You know, when you're in your teenagers, you think that you know more than your parents and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I don't think that I, I mean, I think that my parents would both tell you that I, I really wasn't that a rebellious uh, of a child. Are there things that I did? Absolutely. There, there are things that I, that I did that probably this to this day and age they don't know about. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's things absolutely that I did as, as a teenager and young adult that I'm not, that I'm not proud of. Uh, but all of us have, have we that. all have yeah, that. All of us have that. So. What about sports? When did you? Well, I, have that was very a love for sports. That, that was that was very very young. My parents loved sports, so you know, in '62 when we live in Atlanta, so in '66 the Braves move into town, and they start taking me to to Brave games. You know, when I'm four years old. Uh, but even prior to that, we would go to Georgia Tech games or. Uh, I don't remember going to Georgia games. I think it was more Georgia Tech because that was in downtown Atlanta. I, I can remember, you know, doing that at a at a very young age. So, you know, that was kind of instilled to me. But uh, certainly, love of baseball was instilled. My dad tells a tells a great story. Um, he he said, "I should have known that you were going to go into broadcasting in the fall of '67 because we would go out back and he would toss the ball as every father does with their." with her kid and, you know, play catch or just toss the ball, let me hit it around the backyard. He said, but after that World Series in 67, uh, uh, Cardinals and Red Sox, he said, all of a sudden, you were just doing a running play-by-play as I threw the ball to you. And it wasn't it wasn't like every hit that you had was a home run. You would have him grounding out to second or, you know, singling to left or lining out to third. And you knew all the players. And you would just do this running commentary as you were at the plate and running to the bases and running around the bases. He said, that's what I should have, that's what I should have known, that, that what was going to happen. Um, so that was probably a... A, a seminal moment uh, for me, but no, I 
I love I love the game of baseball, and then it, it kind of grew from there for for every sport. And then played sports as I was a kid. wasn't wasn't very good. Was better at was probably best at golf of everything. My dad put a my dad and my grandfather, my my mom's father, put a love of golf for me and in into me, and so uh, that's what I took up. played Played in high school, played a little bit in college. Well, that's a great sport to play because no, you can play it. Yeah, still for play it today. I don't, I don't play it near as well as as I do. So yeah, I get a little frustrated at, <laughs> at times. But uh, that's golf, though. Yeah, it's that's the most golf. frustrating sport yeah. out there because I continue to play. I didn't start really playing until after college. Played a little bit in high school, but for me, it seems that it's the one sport that. I continue to practice, but I get worse. Because <laughs> I remember in basketball, it seemed when I put in the effort to practice yeah. and the time, I could see results of getting better. But with golf, there's times I'm like, how in the world am I getting worse? So it's so frustrating. Well, basketball is a team thing. You know, again, if you if you play basketball well, you learn to play. It's a it is a we thing. It's not a me thing. Golf definitely is an individual kind of thing. Uh, you know, basketball, football, baseball, there are others on the field, others in competition with you that have a tendency more often than not to make you look better than you actually are. Golf is not that way. It is you are out there on an island. Uh, so that then that's kind of the thing that I loved about it. And, and I still love about it to this day. It is it is it is a game that is completely up to you, completely up to you. That's right. How you think your way through, how you hit, you know, all that. All that kind of stuff, and so that that's that's one of the reasons I think I really enjoy the game. Yeah, it's all sports have a mental aspect sure. to it, but golf is the most mental game that I've experienced because it's not a true reactionary type of sport, right. but you have to almost make it that way in your mind that you just get up there and muscle memory and just a natural reaction where if you're playing basketball or football, I mean, because of the speed of the game, you're just a lot of times just naturally reacting to other things going on. But that's what's so tough about golf. And that's why I admire the elite of the elite golfers that are on the PGA tour. It's just amazing. People well, forget the PGA tour, the corn Ferry tour. Well, of course Uh, people have no idea how good those guys are. And even on the, on the women's side of things, people have no idea how good the women are. Uh, I've played with many. I've actually played with a couple of professional LPGA gals. It's incredible how good they are. I mean, just incredible how good they are. Agreed. How often do you get to play? I don't play near as often as I, I play. You know, like this this year, I, I think I picked up the clubs maybe four or five times. Um, you know, usually a typical year is ten to twelve, uh, and there will still be one of those rounds where I'll drop something low. But you know that um, keeps you coming back. That keeps right? me coming back. That keeps me coming back. But you know now I'm I'll shoot right around eighty. You know something like that. Like, oh, that's good though. Occasionally I can. Uh, two summers ago, well, not this year, but past year, I I dropped one into the sixty. So that I was I was still all right. I still have it. I was like, yes, I still yes, have it. Yes, you do. <laughs> Holes in one. No, never had a hole in one. Never, never had a hole. Same in one. year, never. No, no I've got a cousin. A bit longer than I've got me, a but. cousin who's who didn't pick up the game till late. He's already had three hole in ones, and I was like, "Come on!" <laughs> See, I just don't understand that. Some people just have this propensity that yep. they have that. I had uh, Rean Gibson uh, on the podcast, and speaking of the Corn Ferry, mm-hmm. he'd been playing on that. Just earned his PGA Tour right. card. Won the uh, BMW Pro Am mm-hmm. right. here in Greenville, and he's had nine. Yeah, it's incredible. And I'm like, how in the world? I mean, it's just... There was somebody on the PGA Tour who just had their first hole-in-one. 
I mean, you know, this is a guy yeah. that's on the PGA Tour. But sure. and he you just, think that they would, yeah. just the opportunities, they yeah. play so he, much he golf. He just had his first hole in one. I was like, wow. You know, a guy like, uh, and I've seen, we uh, when I was in school at App, my buddies and I, we used to go down to the uh, Greensboro, Greater Greensboro Open, and we traveled there. So we saw Ray Floyd have a hole in one. And I think Floyd at the time, it was his 11th hole in one. It's amazing. Uh, it was, so it, yeah, some people are, are more fortunate than others. I won't call it luck because it's not luck. It's no, skill. it's not luck. No, it's yeah, I, I would agree. Have you ever thought about how you'd react once you do hit one? No. Uh-uh. So, no just, <laughs> You're not going to jump in the pond no, or anything no, if there's no, one not, around? I'm not jerry-pating and jumping in the pond, no. <laughs> now, moving then to North Carolina, mm-hmm. was it just automatic growing up in that area that you were going to App State? Well, no, it wasn't automatic. Uh, my parents built a house in Montreat, North Carolina, which is a Presbyterian conference grounds. Uh, so they built that in the year I was born in 62. So I spent every summer of my life there until uh, I was 10 years old. We moved there full time when I was in 10. Lived lived in Atlanta until I was six and a half. Then we moved to Canada and I lived in Canada for three and a half years, right outside of Toronto, a little town called Guelph, Ontario, about 60 miles due west of of Toronto and about 25 miles almost due north of Hamilton. Is that for the Presbyterian Church with your dad? No, that was dad had was going to get his master's degree and there was a certain professor that he wanted to study under and that professor happened to be at the University of Guelph, the Golden Griffins. Uh, and so that's where we uh, we went and lived in Guelph for for three and a half years. It was great. I, I was going to say, what does that experience I describe like? it as the the movie A Christmas Story, Ralphie and the BB Gun, but the, it's set in wintertime. You know, that's what it was like as as a kid growing up in Canada. We had you know 120 to 140 inches of snow a year. Uh, snow so much that and every, they knew how to handle snow. Never missed a day of school because of snow. They would throw the snow on the side of the, you know, just plow it, plow it, plow it. It would cover the telephone poles on both sides of the road. So it was like going through a, a tunnel with no roof is what it got. But never missed a day. So learned how to ice skate, learned how to ski, played hockey. Uh, my dad, actually, we had a big um, concrete patio at the back of the house. So he and I would, when it was snowed enough, we would get the snow shovels and shovel it up and push it. And then he would take the hose and spray it down. And we would create our own ice rink. So that attracted the, the kids to... The house all the neighborhood kids. All the neighborhood kids. And we would play, you know, skate and play. And you could literally skate on the roads that were around the neighborhood. I mean, it was that that's how it, the compact the ice was and on the roads and that kind of stuff. But so you could do all of that uh, as a kid. And then the school that I went to, a little different Canadian school is 13 years. It's not just 12, so it's 13 years. And then you could come home for lunch. It was an hour and a half break, and you could come home for lunch. We never came home for lunch during the winter or even any time because Just during the that, they would give you an hour and 20 minutes. You could have lunch in 10, and then you could go out back and just get after it, doing whatever, playing baseball, football. But in the wintertime, the fire department would come and do the same thing that we would do to our back patio. They would shovel up the snow in a, in a huge ice rink. It must have been 80 yards long and um, spray it down with the water with the water trucks turned into a massive ice rink. So we would bring our, our skates, our sticks and our pucks, and we would go out there in the wintertime and just get after it. And you come out there in the spring after all the snow melting, there'd be 40 pucks, you know, on the, <laughs> cause you just lose <laughs> them in the snow right. banks. You just lose just them hidden. In the, yeah, just hidden away. So that's what we would do. And, you know, other times we'd be playing, you know, football or softball or, you know, doing whatever. So it was that was great as a kid, and school was from eight till four, but you had that hour and a half break at, at lunchtime, so it was it was all right. How different was it culturally, though? 
uh, from it was, the United yeah, States. It was it was different culturally. I, I mean, no no doubt about it. So there's much more of the British influence uh, that that's there in Canada. You know, you go to we weren't far from you know Ottawa is we I say we were far. We were like, Ottawa is like four four or five um, hours away. So we would go up to Ottawa. You know, every now and then we never, I never went to Montreal. My parents went into Montreal, so into the uh, French speaking province of Quebec. Um, but it was, it was great. And uh, it was, and I think that's, that, that experience helped me a ton because it taught me other sports. I never would have learned hockey. I never would have known who Bobby Orr was. Bobby Orr became an, an instant hero for me. Uh, and it's still one of the guys that's on my bucket list to, to meet. Uh, so hopefully at one point in time, I'll, I'll get the opportunity to, to do that, but learn that game, I probably wouldn't have learned how to ski. You know how to snow ski. Snow ski helped me water ski. Uh, you know when I was you know, back here in this area. So you know that 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 kind of stuff. So it yeah it, it helped me round I think myself out more. Who else is on your bucket list then? Hank people? Aaron's on my bucket list. Uh, you know uh, obviously being when they moved in. Although when when the, as a kid, Hank was not my favorite player. Joe Torre was my favorite player, uh, so I'd love loved obviously to meet Joe Torre at some point in time. Um, but I've met Jack Nicholas. I've actually done three projects with Jack Nicholas. Uh, been those three projects were just absolutely awesome uh, to to do. So um, so that was you know he was definitely he was he was my idol growing up as a kid. And again, that just goes back to my dad and my grandfather teaching me the love of the game of golf. But Nick, Nicholas was in. And as you know, just seeing Nicholas and the stuff that he's still doing today, you know, he's playing in these various events. There was a there was something on social media this weekend, as a matter of fact, that that came out where he's making a chip. You know, everybody else in this, you know, just it's from like, I don't know, 120 feet off. And he's still, you know, the fact that he still has it, that he's still entertaining folks. You know, he is the greatest that has ever played the game. I was going to ask you, yeah. is he better than Tiger? Yeah, yeah he's the greatest that ever played the game. Um, and why you say if that? You had given, give, if you gave Jack Nicholas today's equipment to play with at his prime, uh, you know, you get Nicholas, you got to remember, Nicholas is standing on the 18th tee at St. Andrews with a three wood in his hand and that old balada ball, and he hits it over the green, through the green at 18, almost went out of bounds. He, he was, his length, was incredible. You give him today's technology, today's equipment, there's no telling how far he could hit the golf ball. And that's why I think it's so hard to judge generations to generations sure. because there has been these technological advancements. Yeah, the ball uh, doesn't move near as much. I mean, you... Uh, you probably don't realize how much the ball used to move, but you used to be able to take those old. Oh, I, I still see my ball moving yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> I know, but the old balada balls, you know, if, if you played, if you played with those things, one, the cover cut extraordinarily easily. If you miss hit it, it would, it would either cut or get a little indate and indentation into it. So you're having to change balls like every two or three holes. You know, today you can play with one golf ball. You can play five rounds with one golf ball. As long as you don't lose it, you can still play with it. Um, but the ball just moves so much more. Miss hit uh, with those balls, and then not only that, but the, then the equipment. You know, there was irons were were just these thin little things. You know, thin faces and small heads, and you're hitting with uh, persimmon woods. The the adage of you know, okay, you hit that one in the screws. Well, there were actually screws that were in you know your your woods back in the in the day. So, and it felt different. Just the ball, just when you hit the ball perfectly, dead center of the of the club. You couldn't feel the ball really coming off of the face. It felt like nothing was there. 
And it was just this, it, I don't know how to describe the feeling. It had to be a beautiful feeling. It was, it was. That's what you but, wanted. Yeah, the, but you, you could even tell on short shots, chip shots, the, the, just the touch that you could put and the softness. It, it's, it was a beautiful thing. But, you know, it's a beautiful thing right now uh, to, to watch. The, you know, these guys now are workoutaholics, and they just mash it and go chase it. Is oh, it's did. unbelievable yeah. the yeah. distance that I see these guys. Yeah. But And I'm for me, keep advancing technology. I need some more help. I hit the ball further at 57 than I hit it at 27, so no doubt. So it's a good thing at times. Yeah. All right. So going back then to your decision to go to App State, were you mm-hmm. looking at other schools? I actually went to King College in Bristol, Tennessee my freshman year. Uh, so I went there my freshman year and then transferred uh, over to App. Um, so it was – but, you know, so it, has, it had – it was a move that had some thought to it. Um, but I just – the business school, again, I was a business major, so the business school at App was, was highly rated in, this, in the state of North Carolina and – we were living in Montreat at the time, so it, it just kind of made sense. And so um, off I went. It didn't hurt that my uh, my girlfriend at the time was also going to go to App. Uh, so the gal that I ended up marrying, uh, my wife Elizabeth, we dated through high school and um, continued to date my first year in college. She was a year behind me, and so... She went on full academic ride uh, to Apple. She's way smarter than I am. Way, <laughs> way smarter than I am. Um, so you know, she she was uh, headed up there. So I think that was also part of part of the uh, uh, the attraction. Well, it uh, had to have gonna, a gravitational pull yeah, there. I'm not going to hide that. That was part of the part of the attraction. And and obviously, it's it's worked out well for us. I I tell people I I have been dating her for forty and have been married to her for thirty five. So wow. Did you know immediately that? You were going to marry her? No, I didn't know immediately uh, that uh, that I was going to marry her. But you know, it was—I guess it was—it was fairly evident. You know, I, I don't know how far you know. You know, when you're, you know, when you're—I guess I was 17 years old when I started dating her and that kind of stuff. I don't think that you that you know that longevity at that age. Some people probably do, but I didn't. It probably wasn't until um, my senior year in, in college. Uh, I guess is when. Uh, I guess it was going into my senior year of college because uh, that's when I asked her to marry me. Was going into my senior year of college, which was I wouldn't recommend because I didn't have a job, and <laughs> 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 yeah, that kind of stuff. But uh, that's so go, that that summer before was I guess is when I kind of figured it figured it all out and said, all right, this is. But we, I had a great example. My my parents were married for almost sixty two years before Dad passed away, and and again I go back to that relationship with with my parents that, that we've already talked about. I, I think. I saw the relationship. I saw. I saw also the relationship of now the the folks that are, uh, are my in laws, uh, as well, and um, the respect and love and and admiration that they had for for one another as as well. So, she came from great stock. Great stock. And I think a huge aspect of marriage is being able to have other couples model what marriage should oh, be sure. like. So you yeah. guys sound like. You had that we in had, both sets of parents. Yeah, we 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 had don't no doubt about it. Um, and not only that, but grandparents. I mean, there was there was a, a lineage on both sides. Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, so um, I never knew my dad's parents. My dad's parents, unfortunately, were dead before I was born. But my mom's parents were just awesome people. Just awesome people. Loved me. Uh, I loved them. I particular. I was very very close with my grandfather. Um, and it, so that was that also had I think an impact on it. But but even like my mom's, my dad had no siblings. But but even like my mom's siblings, 
um, aunt and uncle and, and the way that they handled their family and the way that they handled, you know, um, their spouses and stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it was, it was a great, great family unit to be able to grow up in. Now, going back to the time your roommate convinces you to go yep. to the radio station, yep. what was it then about the radio that grabbed you? Well, I was I was involved in drama when I at a very young age, uh, and I got involved in it. Then was involved in that through high school and in college as well. So I love being on stage, love being you know in front of in front of things. So. Um, just kind of a natural ham. Uh, I mean, I, I love it. I just, the more people, the better. Um, you know, my, my wife was kidding me after we won the, the national championship the first time around, and, you know, I'm showing up at the stadium, and there's 70, about 70,000 people that are in that stadium for the first celebration. I was there. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you walk into it, and I know that I'm there. When they asked me to MC it, I was like, gosh, this is going to be great. But uh, I didn't do the parade, so I came walking in like about 30 minutes before the parade was supposed to supposed to finish up. And even at that time, there were already like 45,000, 50,000 people in the stadium, and the stage was set up. And I was like, yeah. I mean, this was it was great. It was awesome. You, you feed, got energized. Yeah, you feed off the energy. And I, I try to use that in my broadcast now. And that, you know, Death Valley, to be able to broadcast from Memorial Stadium, from Death Valley, Frank Howard Field, absolutely. If you don't think you feed off of that energy that's in there, you're crazy. Uh, you do feed off of it, and you feed off of it when you're away as well. I mean, that, oh, man, the uh, the hate and the venom and stuff that come at you. Oh, yeah, I love love all that. You feed off of it. So uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a blast. How do you balance, then, the aspect of, obviously, you need to be objective at times. That well, now, I do. My paycheck does say Clemson University. Oh, I understand that. So, you know, I, I look at things through... Orange color glasses, but you're right. But there yes. are times where you have to say, you know what? You tip your cap to the to the opponent or what the official was right in that call. Yeah. Uh, you know, And that's my point because yeah. obviously a lot of people that are listening to the Clemson broadcast, they want to hear sure. somebody that they feel is family, that's part of the Clemson family and does have that viewpoint from a orange lens. And I get that. But there's also, I mean, you need to be professional and – can't go down a rabbit hole, so to speak. Yeah. How, how do you balance that? Well, one of the things that I do in the broadcast, and and I don't know that people have ever noticed this or not, but I very rarely mention an official's name. Uh, like I won't give, I don't give the list of who's officiating. I'll give the conference that there's, but very rarely, and especially the guy that's on the mic, very rarely will you hear me call out his name. Um, and I do that on purpose. I, I do that for a purpose uh, because, again, there are people that listen to the broadcast. And, and, and you can find out that if you want that information, you do your work. You can go find it. I know the information. I have it. right, But I just I just never I don't, I don't know. But the reason that I do that is because I don't I don't want people's names out there where uh, and maybe I'm just too soft hearted where they can have <laughs> retribution against them. I just don't I just don't think that that's fair. Um do I think that they should be held accountable and they should do their job? Absolutely. Uh, and I've actually said that on air. I said that on air in my last broadcast. They threw a flag for roughing the passer and they picked up that flag and they said there was no foul. Well, then why did you throw the flag in the first place? Just do your job. Do it well. Do your job. I have to remind myself of that all the time. Do your job and do it well. Um, so that's, but yeah, that's, that's how I, 
uh, that's kind of how I, I go about, you know, identifying people. Now, obviously, players and, and that kind of stuff, coaches, you, you have to. I mean, you, you got to – but you have to you have to be balanced. You have to be fair, and you have to be honest. I think that's another thing. You just have to be honest, and I try to be as honest as I can in the broadcast. Yeah, and I think that is probably more what I was trying to get to, the fairness sure. and yeah. the honesty that – and being authentic. Uh, you really have right. to make sure that you are – uh, doing that each and every broadcast. Yep. Yep. And some of that obviously has to come down to just your confidence. And that is built on the time you spend in preparing and getting ready for a broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> so what is that like? Because, again, as you mentioned, it's not as easy. You just walk into the booth and sit down and start calling the game. There is a, there is a, I, everybody, I'm sure every broadcaster has their own pattern, has their own ritual that they go through. Football, football is, there's a pace to it. Like Mondays, all right. So Mondays is the first of two media days at Clemson. So Mondays, I will, I will go to that. That will feature players that will be interviewed. So I can talk with, can talk with players. It will also feature uh, one of the two offensive coordinators, either Jeff Scott or Tony Elliott. And it will also feature Brent Venables. So that's on Mondays. Then late on Mondays is when I get the the first note package that will come out from Clemson. Usually the opposing team won't come to me on Tuesday. So I'll get I'll get the notes that are now Ross Taylor or obviously previously Tim Beret. So you get those notes and those notes are thick and they're I mean, just all kinds of information. Way more information. Oh, a than ton they, of yeah, information. It's, it's incredible, uh, the amount of information. Monday nights, then, for me, is also Coach Sweeney's radio show. So I have an hour that I'm spending with him. So, you know, it's, and it's a call-in show, and it's the easiest hour in radio. Because uh, I, all i got to do is, Jim in Hartsville, South Carolina, you're up with Coach. What's your question? <laughs> That's basically all I'm there to do. Um, so, But it is also a learning process because Coach is talking about stuff. So you hear that. And you, you start absorbing, okay, what's his thought process? And then, of course, we'll talk during breaks as well. Or I can talk to him in, uh, during breaks. Tuesday, then, is another, is another media day, which, again, will feature players. Coach Sweeney will have his meeting with the media, and that will last eh, 40 to 50 minutes, somewhere there. But you, then you get his, his thoughts. Oh, by the way, also on Monday, practice is in the evening. Uh, is that usually starts about 6.50s, but I go to the team meeting at four o'clock, that team meeting on Mondays is much longer because he shows films. There's a there's there's video from the previous game and all that kind of stuff that's filmed, and he kind of breaks down the game. They do their awards for, but then they also start setting the tone for the opponent that week. So I sit in on that meeting. Coach is very generous and lets me sit in on that. Um, I won't come back on Tuesday. I'll come back on Wednesday and Thursday and sit in on team meetings though as well, just to kind of catch the vibe. I'm at practice. Uh, I'll go in and watch a little bit of Monday's practices I, before I have to get you know prepared for the for the radio show. I'll come back usually to Tuesday, skip Wednesday usually, come back Thursday uh, practice. Thursday's practice is critical to me because they run the they run the, they script the first ten plays. So I come and I watch them run through the scripted ten plays that they do on Thursday, and they do it twice. They do it once with the starting unit and once with the second team unit. So it gives me a sense of, all right, this is what they think they can do uh, against the opponent. Here's, you know, you're scripting 10 plays, which you're, you're scripting 10 plays for a purpose. That's right. Because they've you, watched enough film yeah, to understand. Probing, you know, what, you can, what can you do? What can you be successful in? What's not going to be successful? So you kind of you understand it. Um, so that's, 
you know, also during that time, then I'm doing my spot boards for our team, for the opposing team, start working on that. Usually on really on Wednesdays is when I start my spot. That's a Wednesday, Thursday deal. Um, Thursday nights, Elizabeth and I sit on the couch because of uh, YouTube or ESPN, you know, backed up. I can watch a game or two of the opposing team to get a breakdown and really kind of get a sense of who their personnel is uh, and watching that. So that happens on Thursday. So it's and then Friday is is kind of right. That's that's a, a day where I write everything on my boards, so any kind of little notes that becomes. So that's a three four hour process of, of doing that. So it's yeah, it's, there's there's time involved. There's a lot of and time that you doing, put into it. And I'm also it. doing other sports. You know, I'm a, I'm calling men's and women's soccer games. I'm calling volleyball games during the fall. You know that that kind of stuff. So there's other things that are that are going on. I'm producing a daily show. You know that that is on the the uh, the network. Uh, that kind of stuff, uh, writing articles for uh, magazines at uh, at school. So there's there's other that's going, on, but it's the best job on campus. It's it is. It's they you know it's as long as I don't screw it up, hopefully they'll <laughs> keep me. So, uh, but it's, it's it's the absolute best job on campus. Been very very blessed. Well, obviously, I know you enjoy as, as hectic as it sounds. I mean, that's part of the enjoyment. Exactly. They, yeah. They, uh, I mean, I think that's I, what, I it sounds you like get you thrive flow, in that. You get into a flow, but that's part of the enjoyment. And who wouldn't? I mean, come on. I, I get to be around the players and the coaches and you establish a rapport, you know, with all these guys. And I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? You know, flying with a team, you know, on road games and being in the team hotel and, you know, being around those guys and stuff. You know, who, who wouldn't want to do, do that? And we've got, we have great individuals. I mean, Great individuals, um, you know, and I've I've made some lasting friendships with with a lot of them that still stick to this day. Um, so it's it's great. You've been around obviously different teams, coaches. What is it about Coach Dabo Sweeney and the culture that he seems to have built at Clemson? I think that my greatest advantage in in doing what I do as a broadcaster uh, in college athletics is that I actually worked for him for four years. And, uh, you know, people may know that, people may not know that, but I was I actually was part of his support staff from um, summer of 2010 until right before the start of the uh, 2014 season. So um, because of that, and, and even when I went to work for him, you know, I've obviously had been around it. I was doing his radio show and was covering Clemson, and I'd been around it, and I thought that I knew. But I quickly realized when I went to work for him, and it didn't take long, that I didn't know squat about what was going on. Just didn't understand it at all. So being in there and being uh, in that environment and seeing what goes on, the prep work, the recruiting, all of it, just in the way that Coach Sweeney goes about, you know, building his thing. He has a a thing that's called an all-in book. I have my first one from 2010, and it's about – and that's about two inches thick. I also have one from this year, and it's about—I mean, that's about like six <laughs> inches. It's grown. Thick. It's, it's grown <laughs> exponentially. It's grown. But in that book, really, is is everything that is the program. It is the culture. Uh, it is the the breakdown of who's responsible for what. And he goes. He has four days in July, right after he gets back with everybody on the staff. They take four days and they go over. Everything that's in that book from page one to page whatever it is, 652. Um, and it's meticulous in how he goes. And he protects the culture, but he build, has built this culture. And 
He makes sure that he hires men and women that work in that football building that can either believe in that culture or can be molded into that culture. Um, and he's obviously very fiercely protective of it. But he is, a, he is one of the greatest servant leaders that I've ever been around. I mean, he knows if you're going to make people happy, then you have to serve them. And, you know, I, it's incredible to, to watch how he goes about it. It's the reason that he's kept staff members so long. Um, and it's the reason that, that there's 19 former players that are on the staff uh, right now. It's just it's incredible to, to watch. He, he is – I don't know what he's going to do when he's finished coaching, but whatever he's going to do, he, he's going to do it with excellence. You know, he, that, that best is a standard is something he believes in. But it's today. He's not looking ahead. He's not worried about tomorrow. It's today. He is focused on today. Just give me your best today, whatever that is. Give me what you think is your best in it. I'll accept that. Whether it's you know whether it helps us win or not, as long as you've played your best, I'll be I'll be satisfied yeah. with that. And I think from an outside perspective, that people are starting to see now that the culture that he's building. Yes, obviously winning is very important because as he's mentioned, the fun is in the win. Sure, we get that, but he's not focused on the W itself. It's all about the process and the building up of every individual that he comes in touch with. And I know that you've probably experienced some of that as well. Oh, sure. Um, you know, he, I don't know that I wouldn't say that, you know, and there's a, what I'm about to say, there's a very fine line to what I'm about to say. Winning is important. Okay. And he stresses that it's not that winning isn't important. Winning is important because winning helps you do so many things. It helps you take steps forward in the program where if you're losing, you can't make these steps forward because when you win, you get people to buy in to what you're doing. That doesn't happen when you're losing. So winning is important. And, and, but also the way that you win is important. The character that you show, uh, you know, the culture that you have in winning, that is important. So there's, there's a very fine line that is that is there and that's the reason that he demands excellence that's that's the reason that he wants it and that's the reason that as they go about recruiting that they don't have 300 offers out there they are very selective in who they recruit it's very important for them to have people come to campus be on campus see what it's about understand it and our best recruiters are actually our players they they turn the guys that are recruiting over to our players for however long they're on campus and then coach listens to those to those guys that are already players here come back and he lets them kind of wean out who they should recruit, who they shouldn't recruit. Is this guy a fit? Is they are they not a fit? And coach Sweeney has a has a great way of once a kid hits campus and is on campus within about 10 minutes, he'll know. Is this guy a Clemson guy or is this guy not a Clemson guy? And if they're not a Clemson guy, he's not going and they believe me, I've been in that room, have sat in that room where they've had battles. But He's, you know, he says, listen, you know, y'all have 10 votes. There's, you know, 10 assistant coaches. Y'all have 10 votes. That's fine. But understand my vote <laughs> is, is veto power. It outrules yeah. all of you. So, um, you know, there, there is that fine line, in, but, but that's part of the culture. That's part of the way that he's built it. Can't, and you can't second guess him. People try to second guess him still all the time. Don't second guess him. You know, uh, uh, there's a, the, the greatest, one of the greatest stories is after 
the 2010 Meineke Car Care Bowl. People forget we went to the Meineke Car Care Bowl in 2010. We're six and six. That was my first year on staff. We lose to South Florida, 31-25. And he comes to the press conference afterwards, and he says, "You know, there, I've seen things during this season that tell me we are about to embark on the greatest decade in Clemson football history." Not many people raised their hand and believed him. No. As a matter of fact, there were a lot of people that were saying, well, if it is, it's going to be without William Christopher Sweeney at the helm. <laughs> but obviously, what he said was true. And part of it is because he believed it, part of it because he had the vision to see it. And he was seeing it. In, in what, and he understood that the culture that he was – and he's not afraid to, to make bold moves. He's not afraid to make coaching changes, you know, to bring people in. And he's, he's done that. Um, but then now, when there's coaching changes, it's usually because somebody's retired or has moved on to a head coaching job. And then he's he's also very selective as far as who he brings in to fill that void. What's the most difficult part of your job? Uh, probably the the most difficult part of my job is saying no to people. Uh, to be honest with you, you know, uh, uh, for all the time that I was with Coach Sweeney, I handled all of his email, and that was on purpose. Uh, his his email address was actually my email address, so I handled all of his email because that was one of the things that when I came in, he wanted me to just it was just take a load off of him. You know, the king doesn't need everything coming to the throne. So uh, myself, Beth Douglas, who was his administrative assistant, we would kind of we handle all that uh, that kind of stuff, mail and email. Uh, and by the way, Elizabeth Douglas, the best. She's, she's she's great. She's the best. She's just absolutely the best. I wouldn't I wouldn't be where I am now without her without her influence on me. Believe me, uh, I will tell you that she helped. She has helped shape me and helped mold me into what I've become uh, at Clemson. And, and you don't say that very often about an administrative assistant, but but Beth Douglas certainly has has done that. Um, so you know you. you you, you see all that, but that's, that's probably the most difficult because obviously now as a play-by-play voice, you get asked to do a lot of things and help out in a lot of situations. And there's, and I think people also know the background. I have a, we, Elizabeth and I have a special needs daughter, and that has helped open up all kinds of avenues for us to minister to others and uh, not only minister to our daughter, but also minister to, to others and share our story. And yes, there is hope. Uh, that is out there. Don't let it get you down because it will beat you down if, uh, if, if, you, if it possibly can. But don't let it beat you. There is hope uh, at all times and make the best of the situation. But uh, So that's, that's probably the most difficult. And you get you – get, I mean, there are some requests that at time come across your table. They're like, wow, really? <laughs> well, I can imagine, especially as you mentioned that you know, you're in all of these meetings and you get to sure. see some of the film breakdown and what they're planning. Yeah. So I imagine – you're probably getting bombarded with questions. Don, what are they going to do this week? Yeah, what oh, no. And that, that's mostly from my buddies. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's, that's mostly from my buddies. Like, what are we going to – and my own wife. I mean, when, believe me, when I come home from Thursday practice, what are the first 10 plays? <laughs> so I go through them with her, you know, uh, and that yeah. kind of stuff. Here, here's, to look, here's what to look for. But, uh, yeah. yeah, so that's that's probably the, the, the biggest thing. But I try to be as open as I can. Every speaking engagement that I go on, I give I, I give up my cell phone number. Eight six four four eight three six eight. What is it? I, you know this. No, you need to know it now. Yeah, six eight nine one. I think that's right. I hope that's right. Uh, that's that's terrible. That's part of being fifty seven, right there. Uh, but I give out my cell phone number to at every meeting. Uh, you know, people call me. Hey, if there's something I can do for you. If it's within my power, I'll make it happen. 
understand, though, I'm not always going to say no, but I'm not always going to say yes. So if if we can make it happen, we we try to make it happen. Well, you're very gracious by even saying yes to being on the podcast here. Oh, no. (laughs) Sorry. Glad glad to do it. Now, you mentioned your special needs daughter, Mm -hmm. Michelle. What has that taught you about yourself and your marriage (laughs) and all of it? Well, you want to that's that's one of those Job moments. I mean, uh, so uh, Elizabeth and I have been trying to get pregnant for for a very long time. Uh, When I got married, uh, matter of fact, the the last one of the last things that my my mother said to me, my mom and dad are with me in the room as I'm you know changing in after getting out of my tuxedo and changing in into my suit and tie to, to leave the reception afterwards and head off on our honeymoon. One of the last things that my mother said to me was, all right, you have five years to produce offspring. After that, you're getting tested. <laughs> <laughs> so it took us seven. All right. And actually, we we had gone through in vitro fertilization. This is back in the 80s. So it's a little bit of a different world back then. Went to Duke um, back at, and, and did that at Duke and went through a couple of rounds of that. And it, it didn't take. So we were in the middle of an adoption. And uh, sure enough, as often happens with couples, uh, we were about six weeks from having a child placed in our home and Elizabeth showed up pregnant and that was with Michelle. And um, so the, the agency that we were adopting through had a, had a clause, all right, if you're pregnant, then we, we stop. We stop here. That was fine. So uh, Michelle is born on August the 9th of uh, 1991. And first six hours of her life are pretty good. And then at midnight, the doctor comes and knocks on our door and says, we've had to move your daughter to neonatal. She's having difficulty breathing. And um, so then the next four to five days just became a struggle for her to stay on the face of the earth. And it ended up that she had myotonic muscular dystrophy. And um, she was in neonatal for about two weeks. And But we she came home and we got her out and... But we knew, all right, uh, with that diagnosis, that there were going to be hurdles that we were going to have to face. They basically told us, we don't think she's ever going to walk. Um, they basically told us, we don't think she's ever going to sit up. Um, that, that kind of stuff. So, But she conquered all of that. Uh, she started sitting up, um, you know, a little over the age of one. She was walking uh, by the age of two. Um, then they told well, her lifespan is probably into her early to mid-teens. She's 28 now. Uh, so she's just, it's, it's taught us a lot of things. It's, it's taught us, um, it's, it's deepened our faith. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been good. It's been good for us. And I treat it that way. It, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's been a great thing. And she's the, she's the absolute joy of our lives. She's just a, uh, you know, you, then she had autism. You know, we get an autism diagnosis when she's four. And at that time, we're told she's one of 10 children in the entire world with a dual diagnosis of the kind of muscular dystrophy she has in autism. You know, so how do you deal with that? Um, yeah. How there, did you guys deal with it then? <laughs> there, there have been two times in my life where I have wept. And when she got the autism diagnosis, that was one of them. Um, you I mean, just I get emotional now thinking about it. But uh, uh, but you learn to handle it. You I mean, you that's what faith is about. Uh, And that's that was a, you know, as a I was I'm trying to think how old I was, 33. 
I guess, you know, you think at 33 that you know everything. You don't know squat at 33. And so that was, it was life changing, uh, you know, for us. But it was, it was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the world. You wouldn't trade it? No. It was awesome. Um, It, and it just, it deepened, it deepened the relationship between my wife and myself. It obviously, it deepened relationships in my family. I mean, it's, it's, no, it was, it's been awesome. And chances are that, yeah, Michelle is probably going to pass away before I do. How am I going to handle that? That will be, but again, I'll have to hold to the things that I, yeah, I'll have to hold. You've got that. I'll see her again and she'll be perfect. That's right. So, um, that's, that's, and that's the beauty of faith that you just mentioned. That's the base. That's the, yeah, no, that's, that's the promise. That's the goal. Uh, so that's, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. I love the attitude uh, of that, and I know it's not just an easy yeah. road. It hasn't been no, it's, it's all no, it's rainbows and sprinkles, no, so to speak. Uh, it, yeah, I no, understand. It, it isn't My Little Pony yeah. <laughs> for, for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, from from it, but but it's been great, and it's and it's helped us with like. It's, I mean, I can you know Michelle goes to therapy three times a week at the care center uh, in Powdersville. By the way, shout out to the folks at the care center. They're they're awesome. They love up on her and. And so, but you know, you see other what other kids are going through. Uh, there is primarily, uh, primarily children that are in there being serviced. Man, we have nothing to complain about. Well, I have zero to complain about. My my wife became an autism therapist because of our daughter, and she did that for for thirteen years. She was honored actually as the autism therapist of the year in the state of South Carolina in two thousand two. Uh, but you know, it's so it's. She's seen the dark. There's a deep, deep, deep dark side of autism. We have nothing to complain about. Uh, zero to complain about. Well, just think how by going through that, how you guys have impacted so many other and that's what we've tried families to do. Yeah. as well. Yeah. Our our hope is actually to start a foundation and to, uh, and that's something that now because of the platform that I have is. Uh, as as voice of the national champion, uh, Clemson Tigers, it's, it helps. No, that but that's again, that's that again. Winning is important. That's part of winning. Is all right. Now, what do you do with the platform that that you're given? And so, hopefully, we're uh, we have some plans to to try to do that and uh, to help out some some things that we're that we're heavily involved in primarily, and see where we can go from there. Yeah. Now, to why is it that you think so many people love sports? Oh, I just think it's part of human nature. I think it's the, the competitor uh, in all of us. Um, I think that probably, you know, most of us, um, you know, obviously there's, it's the few are the people that haven't participated in some kind of sport, you know, you know, because most of us participate in some kind of sport is growing up as a kid or something like that. You're, you're forced almost into PE class, so you have to do it. Um, but I think it's just the competitive nature of, of all of us. Uh, I think for for some of us, it's also a release. Sometimes it's more of a negative release than than a, than I would like to see it be. Uh, the, the negativity that that comes around with it, but but you have to uh, you have to look at the positive side. I'm 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 a believer that you know positivity is is much more of a driving force than you know negativity. Why would you believe a negative thought? Why would you know that's why would anybody believe anything that is negative? And you control all of that. Don't let I out, you know, here here we go. Now you got me on this rabbit trail. You know, <laughs> here we go. Why, We're on a soapbox. Why why would you, you know, listen to outside influences? Uh, and again, because of what I believe, 
all that is, is, you know, is Satan and his minions attacking you and driving you down and getting you to believe, uh, you know, the negativity, you know, that, you know, and it causes you to do things. Why would you believe any of that? That's, you know, that's so don't put it out of put it out of your mind. Talk to yourself. Believe the things that you can do because you can do anything we can do. You can do anything in life that you really want to do. If you're willing to work hard enough at it, you can do anything that you want to do in life. I don't care what your situation is. Um, and 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 then now now I'm a, I'm a, was going to say that now I'm going to stop. Something. I was about to say something that was really going to get me in trouble, but but I, I'll keep that thought to myself. But you know you you know what all of us have inside of us is is marvelous, is absolutely marvelous, and the fact that we're even on this earth is is marvelous. Uh, you know, science, math. I'm a, I'm not a big believer in science, but I'm a huge believer in math because math, math will tell you. Math will actually just the math of things will tell you stuff. Like, for instance, the fact that you and I are sitting here, the odds, the odds of you and I sitting here. And I just read an article on this. But if you had, if you had a million, if you actually had, you had two million die a dice. If you had two million die, and each of those die had a million sides to them. You would have to roll all of those, all those two million die with a million sides, in them, and every one of those die would have to come up to the same number. That's the odds that you and I are here. That's mind-blowing. That's what, that's what math has taught us. That that's that's mind-blowing. So you know what that teaches me? That teaches me that there is order. That there was a creator. You know, because this doesn't happen. This didn't happen because we were in primordial ooze and these two things came together, or there were gases. Where did the gases come from? There had, you know, where did those come from? They can't, you can't explain away that. I can explain away what, what I believe because I believe there's a superior being and that he talked all of this. He talked all of this into, into existence. For me, it's much easier for me to believe that than it is for me to believe that all of this happened because of a pool of primordial ooze and what happened or, or a cloud of gases that all of a sudden came together and bang. There was a big bang theory, yeah. God spoke it and bang, That's it right. happened. Uh, so, well, I, I think it's you didn't expect to get that on your no, <laughs> I did not. But that's what I love, though, is that it's us having a conversation yeah. and where it meanders, and just to the point where you're talking about. I get proof every single day, no doubt. And I'm not just talking about technology. I'm talking about just a human being. Just you and I looking at each yeah. other. I'm like, I marveled that. At a human being, especially if you're a parent and see a child and understanding, you know, sure. that whole process, obviously, like you are as well. Going back, though, to just as we're wrapping up in terms of you've shared some of your wisdom. But are there any specific words of wisdom in terms of quotes, phrases, mottos or just life advice that you've leaned on over the years that you would like to share uh well uh john gordon's been a big influence on me i don't know if you've had an opportunity to interview john. i have yes uh, well, john's you know obviously don't know who john gordon is john is a motivational speaker author uh that kind of stuff uh so i've gotten to he's know mr him. positive yeah well, yeah i've gotten to know him through uh through coach sweeney uh, so he showed up on campus i think in 2011 is maybe when he first showed up so he and i struck a, a very quick friendship i had to go meet him and get him to where he needed to be and so uh, that's that's how John and, and I got to know each other. But um, 
And we stay in banana. One of the things that, that I've gathered up from him is that my best days are ahead of me. They're not behind me. That's, that's, that's something that I use all the time. Even at 57, my best days are ahead of me. They are not behind me. And I truly believe that. Uh, I really, really do uh, believe that. So that's, that's one. Um, and then uh, two would, you know, I, I, that's that's one up. That's not one. That's one is is you know I'm going to love my God with with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my, my with all my power that I can, and then I'm going to love my neighbor as as myself. People, I think, misinterpret that, and I'm and love your neighbor as yourself because sometimes loving your neighbor is sometimes it is it's it's reaching over and putting a a soft and tender hand on them as they're going through whatever in their life, when they're going through a tremendously difficult time. But sometimes it's also pointing out the wrong in their life and calling them on it. That is loving your neighbor as much as it is as comforting your neighbor, is making sure that they're on the right track. Um, so I think that especially in today's world, in today's society, where you know you have to, you have to love, you do have to love everybody, but you don't always have to agree with everybody. You don't always have to agree with their stance, but you can still love up on them. Sometimes I think that we, you know, we, it is too often that by pointing out somebody, that some, the, the wrong that somebody is doing is construed, well, you hate that. No, you don't hate that person at all. You want them to come to the right track. Um, will they believe that or not? That's, again, you know, I don't know. Yeah, and that's their, gonna believe that, that's their, their own process, yeah, their, their own, own decision. That's their own process. But, hey, you know, I respect you. I hopefully that you respect. And often, and too often, it's it's the other side that's not respecting my point of view. Uh, but it is that is what it is. Surround yourself. I will tell you though, one of the other keys: surrounding surround yourself with people who have your like point of view. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at, at all. It's the reason I go to church uh, is because I want to be among a body and you know be among people that are like minded. And to be in a worship service and to be with like-minded people and hear all of us raise our voices and stuff like that together is, is man, I love it. Just it's absolutely. community. Yeah, absolutely. That's where yeah. you can be energized. Yeah. That's where you can get some of that affirmation and be able yeah. to face some of the struggles yeah. in life. It's And it's part of calling a game at Clemson. I mean, it is. If, if you don't think that I'm, that I'm not looking from my perch, you know, it's – at Death Valley and seeing 80,000 people that are out there and all of us, well, there's 8,000 are there cheering for the other team. That's the amount of tickets <laughs> we get. But, but you understand what I'm saying? Do you know, to, to see all of that in just unison in one place, and so, it's, it's awesome. It's great. Um, and it's, again, it's one of the great job. It's one of the great parts of this job yeah. uh, is to be able to do that. And when you talk about seeing all these people in – all these people have names, and yeah. I just think it's interesting that I've done a little bit of radio, and you don't really understand how many unique names are out there until you have to pronounce them. <laughs> so, the pronunciation yes. list is, yes. Yeah. How, how challenging is that for Whoa. you? Because it seems right now, Clemson is all over the map with different names. Yeah, so uh, we've got one at quarterback that's coming that everybody is, but I went to the source when he was here on campus, actually, he and his parents, I went to the source, so I have the pronunciation uh, of that down. I don't know if I can say his name because I think that would be a recruiting violation uh, for, for me to do it. That's uh, that's that's a whole other story. That's right, yes, it. exactly. But, uh, yeah, so you have to learn uh, Rook Ororo, you know, for, for instance. And Rook <laughs> that's is, a great Rook, example. Rook is a short, uh, you know, he's, he uh, 
uh, is from African descent. And uh, so, um, but yeah, so there's there's things that you got to learn how to get. Uh, Cleveland Furl, for instance. Everybody pronounced it Feral. They still do. Brent Venables put the fear of God in me when we signed him on signing day. He, we were getting ready to do our signing day show. And he comes to me, he goes, now listen. I know it looks like Farrell, but this kid's name is Farrell. Don't get it wrong. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but yeah, so, yeah. but you, you, you learn those. I, I even went to ETN, uh, to Travis and said, the Cajun pronunciation of that is H-E-N. All right. And I said, so how, you know, I said, how do you want this? You know, you're from, how do you want, you know, how do you want your, your name? And he said, no, nah, he said, ETN's fine. But I get the sense that, you know, he would probably be really, but he's, nah, ETN's ETN's fine, so. Now, you mentioned also one last thing, that you were a drama guy, and do you have a favorite movie? Uh, My favorite movie, uh, I'm a big James Bond fan, but my favorite movie probably of all time is The Sting. And I think that was just... Paul Newman, Robert Redford. Redford. Uh, But I, I think that was just because it it... I went to see it as a as a young that movie came out in seventy four something like that but uh, that would probably be that I'm a huge Blues Brothers fan as well love everything about the Blues Brothers <laughs> so that's this whole hamming yeah. up so I get, it up. I get I yes. get you know that's obviously you know uh, both sides of the spectrum um, and so those those two Lawrence of Arabia anytime that Lawrence of Arabia is on I'm watching you get sucked in I get sucked in I love the just it's the cinema of Lawrence of Arabia just the visual of Lawrence of Arabia uh, that gets me in and there are times and I and I find that it gets in my broad there are times where you have the sunset going you have a 3:30 kickoff and all of a sudden, about 6.30, there's that golden hour, and that sun is setting. And from my perch, I can look to the west, and I can see it sitting over Hartwell. And that glow starts, and then that, that light also filters in the stadium, and it creates this aura. Oh, it's awesome. It's just, you know, you try to describe that on radio. That ain't a radio thing. That's a picture thing. That's a television thing that you have to, you have to see that on. So it's... It, so there are there are times, but I I love everything about the movies. I, so that's that's part of the drama that, that's in me. I, I love everything about. It. Don't go to the movies as often as I used to. Well, it's a challenge. Yeah. You're so busy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hard, hard to say no. Yeah. Don, thank you so much, Richmond. Good it's to been a pleasure. Time. I know that's taking up way more of your time, but the other way around, but I, but I could continue it. talking for hours. Well, hopefully you'll invite you. me back. There'll be a, a part B to this. Then let, let's hope yes, at some sir. point in time. All right, thank you, brother. Thank Appreciate you. Don. you. Understanding what anchors you in life is obviously what can help you through adversity, but it can also allow you to find community. And it's obvious that Don has found his community and anchor through his faith. And it's that type of anchor that he relies on to maintain that unique perspective of no matter how things are now or have been, the best days are yet to come. Now that finishes episode 121 and more of our conversations can be found on your preferred podcasting platform. And you can also watch some of our episodes by visiting our Rich Take on Sports YouTube channel where you can easily subscribe. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.